following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to open your Bibles up to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah this morning. Zephaniah chapter 1. I had three Sundays before I'm going to take a break from the pulpit, and Christian's going to be preaching through 2 Timothy. And as I thought through what can I do for three Sundays, I thought of a lot of things. I thought of different topical studies, I thought of different texts, random texts. And when I began to pray on Friday, morning, as my wife encouraged me to do so, Zephaniah has three chapters. We have three Sundays, and so we're going to be in Zephaniah the next three Sundays. We are told in the Bible that the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, all that is exalted. And all of it will be brought low. He has a day against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills. Today, when he will come against every high tower, every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and all their magnificence, against all the beautiful craft. In that day, we are told that the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. We're told that the idols of the earth shall utterly pass away once and for all. Everything that has been and is and ever will be unworthy of our worship, will pass away. People shall enter the caves in that day, the caves of the rocks and the hills and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. That's from Isaiah 2. We're told in the book of Joel that the Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's the same day that Isaiah was talking about. We're told at the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming. Burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be reduced to stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Peter, as we saw recently, touched on this day. He said, 
the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And in light of that day, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will pass away and be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In an ultimate sense, the Bible that you're holding right now has been given to you in order to prepare you in the kind providence of God for the coming day of the Lord. That's why we're here on Sunday mornings. That's why we gather on Wednesday nights as a church. We're preparing for that day. We gather to worship on Sundays, the first day of the week, the Lord's day, in order to prepare us for the day of the Lord. All of history is headed towards this day, beloved. This is the day that ought to be on our calendars. If we knew the exact timing of this day, it would be the day on our calendars marked as the day that eclipses every other day by far. No comparison. It's the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. It's the day when God will make everything right again. Everything. It's the day when God's people will be fully and finally delivered from the very presence of sin, the very corruption that has plagued them and enslaved them for so long. It's the day when God will make everything new, so much so that the former things shall not be remembered or even come into mind, as Isaiah 65, 17 says. It's the day when God will judge the world in righteousness, when every unrepentant sinner who has ever lived will be thrown into a place of everlasting, unending unquenchable fire and punishment. In that day, we will see a great white throne and him who is seated on it. We will see heaven and earth flee away from his presence and no place will be found for them. Your eyes will see the dead, small and great, standing before the throne and you will see books opened We'll see another book opened, which is called the Book of Life. You will witness the dead being judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And we will witness the sea giving up the dead who are in it. And we will witness death and Hades giving up the dead who are in them. And they will be judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. That's the day to which you were headed. Or rather, the day that's coming to you. You will see death and Hades thrown once and for all into the lake of fire. And you will understand that this is the second death, the lake of fire. With the eyes of faith, we can almost see it now as we open our Bibles. Look through this lens of scripture, we can almost see this day. This day of unfathomable dread and indescribable delight. It'll be a day of disaster and dread for everyone who loves sin, but a day of indescribable joy and delight for everyone whose heart has been transformed 
to hate sin than to love righteousness. It will be the worst day for some and the best day for others. And it's this magnificent, spectacular, majestic, admirable, remarkable, breathtaking day that the Old Testament book of Zephaniah points us to and calls us to prepare for. And as I stated in the beginning, the collection of writings that make up what we call the Bible are given to us in order to prepare us for this day, the day of Yahweh. This morning, we have the privilege of beginning a three-part series of studies in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a minor prophet with a message that can bring major profit to every soul that heeds his message. Zephaniah was part of the royal family in Jerusalem. His great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah, one of the good rulers in Judah. Strangely enough, the name Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden His parents probably named him that in faith because he was born during the shadowy reign of Manasseh. In a summary statement in 2 Kings chapter 21 verse 16, we are told this. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Zephaniah was born during this time and his parents believed that the Lord would hide him and protect him, conceal him from Manasseh's violence. That was the name his parents gave him, but in the providence of God, Zephaniah, which means Yahweh has hidden, actually corresponds with the message that this man brought to the people in his day and still brings to the people in our day. Listen to Zephaniah chapter two, verse three. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commandments. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The reality of God hiding his people, tucking away his people, bringing them into a place of refuge and shelter, And safety before the day of his wrath is the reality that we celebrate in the gospel. We celebrate Zephaniah. We celebrate the fact that God has hidden his people in Christ. We celebrate and rejoice in the gospel, the good news that in Christ alone, there is refuge and shelter and safety for the day when God comes to judge the world and to make a full and final end of sin and rebellion. Those in Christ will be Zephaniah. They will be hidden in God. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah in Judah, just before God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC. It was then when the people of Judah and Jerusalem would be taken into captivity into Babylon Zephaniah prophesied right before then. And the message that God, through Zephaniah, brought to the people of his day was that judgment was coming. It was coming quickly. And we know that because 586 would come, the Babylonians would come with swift 
strong, powerful armies and utterly sweep away everything in Judah. Zephaniah pointed the people to the destruction that was about to fall on them within their own lifetime. It's crazy that we get to read Zephaniah knowing what, hap- what would happen within their lifetime. God was about to make a complete end of Jerusalem because of its idolatry and its wickedness. But Zephaniah also points to a greater destruction to come. And that's the global, universal destruction that will occur in the day of the Lord. And so Zephaniah, in a sense, portrays the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC by the Babylonians as somewhat of a foretaste or a foreshadow of the global destruction that will come upon humanity when Christ returns to destroy his enemies and to deliver his people. One of the beauties about the book of Zephaniah is that it points the people of God back to the basics of what it means to worship God and to prepare for the coming day of God. It calls us to be humble. It calls us to be upright. It calls us to seek the Lord simply to wait for him. It calls us to rejoice today in the hope that God will indeed save and satisfy his people tomorrow. It calls us to patiently pursue God and to love others. It calls us to heed his voice, to receive his correction, to learn from his discipline and to draw near to him in prayer. The book of Zephaniah teaches us that finding refuge in God today assures us that he will protect us from his wrath tomorrow. As we come to chapter one today, the prophet calls our attention to God's response to sin in verses one to six and our responsibility to revere this God who hates sin in verses seven through 18. And so let's begin in verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Many believe that Zephaniah was actually a black brother, that if if you study the history of Cush and the Cushites, they were from Africa or Sudan. It could be that he's part black. And notice that he's the son of Hezekiah, or he's a great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, one of the better kings in Judah. And the time of his prophesying came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. This is typically how the minor prophets, or even the major prophets, begin, is that the word of the Lord comes to them. We know, based on what Peter says in the New Testament, that the Spirit came upon such individuals and led them to preach and to write what they wrote and preach what they preached. No prophecy ever came about by someone's own private interpretation. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit of God, and that's exactly what happened to Zephaniah. At one point in his life, the Spirit revealed the will of God and the Word of God to him, and because of that, he was bound under compulsion, under pressure, heavy burdened to bring this word to the people of his day. 
So we see that he was part of the royal family, and so that's probably why he has insight in this book to what's happening in the other nations around him. He understands what's happening in the political world of Judah in that day. He's part of the royal family. And in verses 2 and 3, he points his hearers to the global destruction at the end of history. And then as he continues in verses 4 and following, he says that Jerusalem's coming destruction in 586 BC is a faint picture of that global cataclysmic destruction that is to come. But notice how he begins with the global destruction in verses 2 and 3. He says, and this is God speaking, I will utterly, this is comprehensive language, this is a thoroughness, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is exactly what Peter was talking about in his second epistle. When the earth and everything done on it will be utterly consumed, destroyed, dissolved, burned away. Verse 3 says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Based on that order, man, beast, birds, fish. This takes our minds back to Genesis chapter 1 in the order of creation. And what God is saying through the prophet here is that he's going to decreate everything. He's going to undo the order of creation. He's going to uncreate, decreate everything in judgment. Sweeping away man, beast, birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea. And the rubble with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This idea of cut off is covenant language. It was referred to in the Old Testament specifically when there was a covenant breaker that would be cut off from the land. And God, in a sense here, is saying that he is in covenant with all mankind and that all mankind have broken his covenant. This, they have become disloyal. They become adulterous. And he's going to cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Verse 4 now focuses from, it shifts from the universal to the local, from the cataclysmic now to Judah's destruction. Notice verse 4 I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, this false god that had, the people had been clinging to. And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, they were creation worshipers. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, another false god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So he's coming against idolatry. He's coming against syncretism, those who worship God, but yet also worship another God. It's idolatry. 
They bow down and swear to Yahweh, and yet their allegiance is still to Milcom, this false god. And he summarizes them in verse 6. They are those who have turned back from following the Lord. This is straight up apostasy. They had begun to follow the Lord. You remember that, well, you can recall ancient Middle East, even Middle East today, very dry land. And so when you had a God who could bring rain, Baal, the people were, cl- were quick to pledge allegiance to Baal and to pray to Baal because that's what they longed for. They needed rain for their crops. They were dependent on the rain, and so they pledged their allegiance to Baal. The priests eventually were led astray to worship Baal, to pray to Baal, to pledge allegiance to Milcom as well. But they were those who turned back from following Yahweh. They did not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Again, this book is calling us back to the basics of seeking God. As Psalm 104 says, to seek his strength and his presence continually is our duty as his people. But they had turned back from following him. And notice the main governing imperative or charge given to the people in his day in verse 7. In verses 7 to 18, the prophet Zephaniah calls us, calls our attention to our responsibility to revere and fear this God who hates sin. The main imperative here is is verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. This is essentially the message of the entire Bible. Be silent. It's a picture of submission. It's a picture of dependence. It's a picture of acknowledging his authority. To stop talking. To stop rebelling. To stop kicking against. And just to be silent to accept his reign, to accept his rule, to adore his sovereignty, to see and savor him on his throne. That's the call, to be silent. To stop resisting, to stop rebelling, to be silent before Yahweh, God, the Lord, God. Why? Well, notice as he goes on in verse 7. For the day of the Lord is near. That's the main theme of the book of Zephaniah, the coming of the day of Yahweh. Be silent before the Lord. Why? Because his day is coming. And your life is to be seen in light of that day. The lives of the people of Judah and the lives of the people in this city today are to be seen in light of the coming day of Yahweh. Friends, this is where faith flourishes When we go through life without any sense of direction, we become idle. We live without a sense of purpose. We live without a sense of direction. But over and over and over again, God in his word is calling us to fix our eyes on that day. To view our lives in light of that day. To view our priorities in light of that day. To to, to raise our families in light of that day. Everything revolves around this coming day when heaven meets earth again, when God rights every wrong. Why should we be silent? Why should we still ourselves and quiet ourselves 
Why should we shut our mouths? Why should we joyfully come to be quiet? And why should we come to rest in God? Because of the day that is coming. And notice how he goes on. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This is interesting because now he portrays the judgment in terms of sacrificial language. You see, he had established so long ago in the sacrificial system in Leviticus that his war against sin would be expressed in animal sacrifices. Yahweh's war against rebellion and sin and transgression manifested itself in consuming substitute sacrifices. It was a picture of God consuming in fierce wrath, not the sinner, but the substitute in the place of the sinner. And what he's saying here is that the people, the people themselves will not have a substitute. They themselves will be, they themselves will be the sacrifices. They will be devoured by God's fiery judgment. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has consecrated his guests, his witnesses, which probably are the, the righteous remnant of the day. They will witness God unleashing his fiery judgment upon his enemies as a sacrifice, but no substitute. They themselves will be consumed. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has consecrated, set apart, set aside his guests, the righteous remnant of the day. And notice how he goes on to describe this great day of sacrifice. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. The Lord's issue in there is not how they dress, but because of how they dress, they are showing their allegiance to various false gods. On that day, verse 9, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Interpreters kind of go all over the map with this one. It could signify their irreverence in leaping into the threshold, in, into the Lord's presence, just instead of, instead of reverently walking into his presence, leaping over without a care. You know, we have this phrase that fools rush in to where angels fear, right? The, the fools rush into these places of reverence, and that's, that could be what this means. It also could be some superstition as you read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and, and, and the or 5. I think, you know, we're talking about Dagon and how... Um, there was a superstition regarding Dagon's threshold and, and, and crossing it. Either way, there, there's, there's sin involved here. There's irreverence. There's idolatry. On that day, I will punish not only those who leap over the threshold, but those who fill their master's house, which is a reference to the Lord's house, the temple, with violence and fraud. The Lord's house was to be a place of prayer. It was to be a place where God's law and instruction came from God to the people, distributed to the people, and they had turned it into a place of violence and fraud. It was fake. There was hypocrisy involved. As we saw earlier on in the chapter, they had one hand praising Yahweh and another hand clinging and swearing to Milcom and Baal. That's why he's going to punish 
Jerusalem within this lifetime here. Verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, which was the main entrance into Jerusalem, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Again, he's referring now to the local judgment that was going to happen in 586 BC. Can you imagine the city of peace, the city of Zion, where God's praises were sung and and heard, where God's law was read and taught, now becoming a city where loud cries and wailing is heard. Why? Because of its idolatry. God is a God who will judge his people's sin, who will judge sin, who will declare war on rebellion. Remember the message of 2 Peter, the false teachers were saying, God's not going to do anything. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation until now. Friends, Genesis chapter 7, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, various judgments throughout history shows that God means what he says, that God is a God who speaks, who does not lie. A God who warns and follows up with actual punishment. God's not a God who, 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 like so many parents say, if you do this, I'm going to do this, and they don't follow through. No, God, when he threatens, when he declares his word, it will come to pass if it's not heeded, if it's not cherished by the people. A loud crash from the hills will be heard. Notice verse 11. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Can you imagine this once prosperous city? No more traitors found in it. No money dealers. No money changers. No, there's no business. There's no more commerce. Can you imagine? Verse 12 says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. This speaks of God's thoroughness in judgment. He himself, he's pictured as a man with a lamp searching the streets, searching every corner, every nook, every cranny, every dark spot. He's searching for his enemies. What a picture God gives us here of how thorough he is in judgment. He will search Jerusalem with lamps. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to run. That's the idea here in this prophetic language. I will punish the men who were complacent. Your translation should say, if you have an ESV, uh, those who are thickening on the dregs, those who have let the wine settle in their lives. In other words, they're just complacent. They're passive in everything. They don't do anything. They don't seek the Lord. He says, I will search them out with lamps, every corner, every dark place, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Notice how their complacency plays out in their worldview. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They were deists. They believed that God created and that he was out there. He made the world, but that he stepped back and is no longer involved in the world. And that's the view, the complacent view of so many people even today is that God is there, 
He's there to call on in times of trouble when things go bad, but really he's not going to do good and he's not going to do evil. He's just, he's just there. That was their worldview. The Lord's not going to do any good. He's not going to reward the righteous, nor is he going to bring evil or disaster upon the wicked. He's a passive God, an inactive sovereign. That's their mentality. But notice God's response in verse 13. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Why? Because judgment was coming. The Babylonians had already been summoned in the decree of God to bring destruction upon his idolatrous people. Can you imagine just a young couple 10, 15 years before the coming destruction of the Babylonians, readying their house, building their house, getting everything in order. God says, though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. They will not. His judgment was coming. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. It was all going to be laid waste. This is the result of sin, by the way. It promises so much, but delivers nothing. And that's the nature of temptation and the way the devil works is he promises much. He promises satisfaction, but only delivers shame and emptiness and guilt and death. Verse 14, notice how he describes the day. What's interesting here is that, again, the coming destruction in 586 B.C., again, is, is what? It's a foreshadow, a foretaste of the global judgment to come at the very last day of history. And notice how he describes this day. The great day of Yahweh is near. Near and hastening fast. Language very similar to Second Peter chapter 3, by the way. It's coming. It's near. How is it near? Well, one day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like one day. It's near in his aspect, in his mind, in the timeline of eternity, so to speak, it is near. Relatively near. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Those who are with power, those who are characterized by strength will be wailing in that day. Reminds us of Revelation chapter 6, where we are told of this vision that the Apostle John had regarding this day of the Lord. It says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the day that Zephaniah is bringing to the people's attention and is bringing to our attention today. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And notice how he uses this Hebrew parallelism now. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. 
a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast. We're told by Paul that this day would come with this blast of this trumpet from God. Trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Again, exactly what Isaiah 2 is telling us. The Lord has a day against all that is lofty and high and proud and tall and exalted. He's coming to humble people. He's coming to humble humanity. Humanity that has, like Babel, lifted up its own tower in order to reach the heavens to make a name for ourselves. He is coming down to knock it all, to replace our trusts and our hopes, to show that he alone is worthy of our trust and our hope and our worship and our adoration. It's a day of wrath. That means fury. God, because he is a good God, has righteous wrath towards all that threatens the joy of his people and the glory of his name. Because God is good, he is a God of wrath. Because he is a God of joy, who delights in his glory, a God who delights in the beauty of his son, that demands that he be a God of righteous fury against all that would threaten the worship of his son. It's a day of distress, a day of anguish when people will be gnashing their teeth in order to hide, in order to run, in order to flee. We, we see that awful picture in Revelation chapter 20, God appearing on his throne and heaven and earth fleeing from his presence. It's a day of distress and deep anguish. It says it's a day of ruin and devastation. God coming to level everything in this world and to bring in the new creation, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. But before that, everything in this present order needs to be ruined and devoured, destroyed. It's a day of darkness and gloom. It's a day of trumpet blast and battle cry as the Lord comes with his armies, with ten thousands of his holy ones, to declare war on every unrepentant sinner. Friends, the day is coming, and we need to live in light of that day. That's exactly what this prophet, this minor prophet with a major message is calling us to, to fix our minds on this day, to live our lives in light of this day. As Peter says, if all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of Yahweh. Verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. The idea is, you remember in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord, through, this, through these angels, had struck these men with blindness so they were groping after the door to come in for Lot and the angels that were in Lot's house. They were, they were, they were staggering in their blindness and, and, and oftentimes this is used in the language of, 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 of judgment. God comes and his judgment is so fierce that it leaves people staggered. It leaves people in one, in one, in one part, it, it calls attention to their, their like drunkenness, like, like tossing to and fro because of how staggering and how mind-blowing, 
how comprehensive the judgment is. He says they'll be like blind men walking. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. This is fierce wrath, just wrath, holy wrath. And notice the last verse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. The things they cling to, things they hope in, the things that people hope in today. It's been in the history of the world where it's been a long, long time where people have bribed judges, have paid, have paid their way out of jail, paid their way out of prison, paid their way out of trouble. Not so with the Lord God, Yahweh. There is no bribery. There's no buying him off. There's no paying for sin with someone's own money. There's no paying for their crimes with their own treasures. God is a just God, and the wages of sin is, not, is death. And the soul that sins must die. He doesn't say the soul that sins can pay me off, can work their way out of it. He says the soul that sins shall die. And that's exactly what will happen on the day of the Lord. Their gold cannot deliver them. Silver will not rescue them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. And notice the last sentence in the chapter. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for the joy of his people. He's jealous for the good of his people. He's jealous for the flourishing of creation. He's jealous for the praise of his glory. Why is he jealous? Because he's good. Again, because God is good, he wants to ensure that his people are satisfied by his goodness. And if there's anything that can take away from their satisfaction in his goodness, God in his holy jealousy comes against those things or those people or those idols or whatever it is. In the fire of his jealousy, the burning hot passion of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It will not be like the flood which descended, came down in 40 days that that happened over, over, over a month, as it were. This is a sudden end. This day will come and it will be quick. As his wrath is poured out, the whole earth will be consumed. And it says here at the very last line of Zephaniah 1, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth, he'll make an end of them. All the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah is calling us to think hard and long on this day. We're to take seriously the warnings of God's judgment. It's easy to get caught up in the here and now. It's easy to get caught up in, well, that'll come one day. Until then, I got bills to pay. I got a house to build. To build. I have hobbies to, to work on and, 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 and to occupy my mind with. Over and over again, when God warns, we're to take heed to his warnings. We're to heed them. 
We're to warn others about them. We are to warn those who are complacent, who say, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do ill. He will not reward the righteous and he will not punish the wicked. We're to warn them to say, as Jerry's shirt says back there, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The day is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. We are to, as this chapter teaches us, we're to flee pluralism and all forms of idolatry and follow the Lord God on the path that leads to life. We are not to swear by God and then pledge allegiance to another God. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to be devoted to one and hate the other or despise one and love the other. You can't be devoted to two masters. And so I plead with you today to search your heart, to examine yourself. Are you loyal to God alone? Are you committed to Christ alone? You look to him for salvation, but do you look to other things for sanctification? Do you look to other things for satisfaction? Or do you believe that in his presence is fullness of joy, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? And do you seek those pleasures? God is the fountain of life for his people, a fountain to satisfy their every longing. He's made us as emotional creatures, and he alone can ultimately satisfy our affections and those emotions. Yes, we're to enjoy this world. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Work hard. Go home and love your wife. Go home and love your, your children. No one can find enjoyment apart from the gift of God. This is God's doing, right? That's, that's Ecclesiastes. But live in that enjoyment in light of this great coming day of the Lord and flee all forms of idolatry, all forms of pluralism. Allow the seriousness of the day of the Lord to move you to revere God. Notice that the, early on in the chapter, the punishment is against those who turn back from following the Lord, those who do not seek him or inquire of him. Again, Zephaniah is calling us back to the basics of what it means to follow God, to seek God. Lord, what is your will? Oh, I have it in your word. Lord, what shall I do today? Oh, I have it in your word here. It's, it's to be constantly seeking the word seek, is, it, 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 it means to search, to inquire, to wait on. That's what Zephaniah is calling us back to. The simplicity of childlike faith that just seeks God. So, so many times we complicate our lives. Oh, I don't have enough time to study this. I don't have enough time to read that. Just seek the Lord. As Samuel says, what is it that you have to say, Lord, your servant is listening. The simplicity of seeking God, of inquiring of him. The word inquire there means to wait on. As I mentioned last week in Second Peter chapter 3, our whole life revolves around just waiting on God, waiting for him to finish his work in us. We do our part by working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as we do that, we are waiting to be conformed to Christ, waiting to be matured, waiting to grow in love, waiting to grow in patience, waiting to grow in self-sacrifice, waiting to grow in all these areas. We are inquiring of God, seeking God, seeking his will, 
as Psalm 104 says, seeking his strength and seeking his presence continually. That's, just a, Christ, that's a Christian life. It's just seeking God. Father, I want to be with you. Father, I want to know your will. Enlighten my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. Give me the, the, the faith of a child that just comes to his or her father and waits, asks, seeks, knocks in anticipation that God will answer. We're also called to thank God for the ultimate sacrifice. As he mentions here in chapter 1, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. We can't help but think and go in our minds to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was, who was sacrificed in our place for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by the sacrifice of himself. And now we do not need to fear the day of wrath that is approaching because Christ has endured that wrath. So Zephaniah has language of, 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 of wrath, of simple childlike trust in the Lord, but also calls our attention to the Lord's ultimate sacrifice in Christ alone, who takes away the sins of his people And so may we be a people who anticipate this coming day, who live in light of this day, who view your friendships in light of this day. And may we say, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Let's stand.